We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. That's what I call science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathering to record this episode. We recognise the ongoing contributions that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are making to the sciences. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast that brings you interesting and independent STEM, science, technology, engineering and maths content from Tasmania. The show is proudly supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information. My name is Neve Chapman and today I am joined in the studio with my expert guest, Dr. Rosie Nash. And I'm really excited because I've loved Rosie's work. I've been following it for almost the entire time of my PhD for the last like three years and it's extremely exciting. So I'm really pleased that you guys are going to hear about it today. But to tell you first a little bit about Rosie, Dr. Rosie Nash is a pharmacist, registered pharmacist and lecturer at the in public health at the School of Medicine, College of Health and Medicine, University of Tasmania. She's the co-founder of HealthLit for Kids, which is what we're going to be mostly talking about today and through her teaching and research she seeks to improve the quality of our health workforce and promote health literacy as an essential asset for our future generations and when you meet Rosie she beams with passion about that topic so I'm really excited to talk to you about that today because I'm sure health literacy isn't something many people really think about or know about or even consider a term because I mean I studied science and health sciences and I hadn't learned about this until I met you actually so (laughs) can you start by telling us a little bit about what is health literacy and why it's important? Yeah I think um, and it's interesting you've said that because uh, certainly some of the teachers that we've worked with uh, today have said to us hang on a minute tell us what is this term health literacy? And so it's really important for us not to make assumptions about people's knowledge and meet them where they are. And I'm going to go into that in a bit more detail as we go through. But I guess uh, health literacy has hundreds of definitions. And so it's very difficult to um, give you one clear definition, but simply it's the ability to find, use and apply information so that we can look after our health. That definition is quite simplistic and I think it doesn't really acknowledge the complex system of life that we all live in. And so every day individuals, we're having multiple interactions um, with other people and also with health services or community services. So, um, And all of those interactions are having a massive impact on our health literacy and also our own health outcomes. So I have another definition that I want to share with you that I think makes more sense to me and that one was provided by um, some of my idols, um, so um, Irina Kickbush and so Kickbush, Wait and Mag, they came up with this definition and that is that health literacy is the ability to make sound health decisions in the context of our everyday life. So it's at home, it's in the community, it's at the workplace and it's in the healthcare system even in the marketplace and our political arenas. It's a critical empowerment strategy to increase people's control over their health and it's their ability to seek out information and their ability to take responsibility. So I think that's a really nice summary and it really highlights that health literacy doesn't just exist in hospitals. It doesn't just exist um, when we're uh, with health services. It 
really is in our homes and in our everyday life. I think we've really moved on in the last probably uh, 10 years about how we think about health literacy. So in the past, um, we well, if, when I was an undergraduate pharmacy student, um, probably some 20 years ago, we were taught health literacy from a deficit model, which is kind of what you were alluding to, I think. Um, and so in other words, it was the patient's fault. Um, they didn't understand the instructions or um, they didn't understand how to take their medicines as we prescribed them. And since then, I think we're more aware of this ecosystem that each person is existing in. And we acknowledge that, yes, there's an individual and they have health literacy, but we don't look at it as a deficit anymore. We look at it more of an asset to be built upon. Um, and then there's two other elements of health literacy that um, more and more, the more I read, um, the more I become fascinated in. And those two elements are just as important as that individual person's assets. Um, and so the first one that I would like to share with you today is the the distributive health literacy of the community around that person. So that might be their mum. That might be the child, actually, um, with someone who has English as a second language. So their child might be advocating for them or translating health information for them on their behalf. So that's something that we call distributive health literacy, and that is the community that exists around that person. The, the third element in health literacy is health literacy responsiveness. And health literacy responsiveness is how well our health or our community organisations um, can meet people where they are. So how are they responding to the needs of that person? And I think if you think about Aboriginal culture, they do that really, really well. Um, if I can't see, then my brother sees for me. And I think uh, that's a really lovely example of how we need to be more health literacy responsive as both health professionals and in any community um, organisations or services and offer distributive health literacy to our, um, our brothers. I think you raised some really important um, points that we should be mindful of. One, the, the point about children potentially having to advocate for people with English as a second language um, because they are more fluent, but then also, which is a cultural barrier as well as a language barrier. And then also we have the the cultural nuances that vary between communities and that you know Aboriginal communities in particular, they share in sorrow, they share in in health and they, they share in building up each member of their community in a way that's um, probably quite different to a lot of Western communities. But it's probably an important thing for us to be cognizant of is that different refugee or migrant communities are going to have different nuances that will change the way that they will interact with health medicine or health information. The professor that I work with, I'm very fortunate to work with a, a world-leading professor called um, Richard Osborne, and he encourages us to think about health literacy from eight principles. So they're called Ophelia principles. And the Ophelia principles um, stand for optimising health literacy and access. And he came up with these to really encourage us to think about every time we develop a health literacy intervention, are we continuously disadvantaging the disadvantage or are we upholding principles and ensuring that the health literacy um, interventions we've come up with are, are going to enable everyone and so I just if it's okay with you I'd love to share those eight principles that would with be great you. yeah if you could so so the eight principles include one that we are outcomes focused so we are focused on improving the health and reducing health inequalities that exist across communities and within communities 
Um, two is that we're equity driven and this is a really important one to me personally. Um, so that all activities at all stages prioritise disadvantaged groups and those experiencing inequity in access and outcomes. Um, so some of those groups that we've just mentioned earlier, um, those with English as a second language, um, our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, um, they should be always uh, front of centre when we're thinking about these interventions that we're, we're putting into communities. The third one is really excellent, I think, um, and does uh, really align well with Aboriginal um, culture, and that is that we use a co-design approach. So in all activities at all stages, all of the relevant stakeholders are engaged collaboratively to design solutions for themselves. Um, and so I think, you know, that's something we've probably stolen from our <laughs> First Nations people and we thank them for that and for helping us to think about um, health literacy in that way. The fourth one is a needs diagnostic approach. So we really need to make sure that we're using local data and looking at the local needs and not applying a one-size-fits-all approach to health literacy. Um, the next one is that it should be driven by local wisdom, so that emphasises that previous point, that the intervention is um, developed and implemented and grounded in the local experience and expertise and listens to the people. Um, and the next one, number six, is it's sustainable. So optimal health literacy practice should become a normal practice and part of our everyday policy. And there's a few things I'd like to say about that a bit later on, if that's possible. Um, and then finally, so the last two is being responsive. And I, this was something that I mentioned before. We need to recognise that health literacy um, needs to respond to the various individuals, context, countries, cultures and time points so whilst I might have great health literacy when it comes to my medication because I'm a pharmacist um, at this point in time, if my health situation was to change, um, for example, I was to develop breast cancer, my health literacy in and around breast, breast cancer might be limited. And so in that way, health literacy is a dynamic, changing, ever-evolving ever concept. So that just sort of adds to that complexity of how do we resolve health literacy, I guess. And then the final one is eight, that we should um, ensure that these health literacy interventions are systematically applied. So a multi-level approach is always required because of the complexity of health literacy as a construct in itself. And so we should think about the resources, the interventions, the research and policy, and we should organise all of these things in a way that are there to optimise health literacy and also um, reduce any unintentional inequalities that we might be causing. That's a fantastic eight-step method or an eight-principle method because it actually, when you started going through it, I was like, well, how can you do that without, you know, co-designing? Well, I was like, well, how can you make it equitable if you haven't engaged your stakeholders? And I was like, oh, wow, this is really thought out. So well done to Richard Osborne, was it? That's right. Yeah, well, it sounds absolutely phenomenal. But one thing that you touched on there was that it has to be outcomes-focused and it has to be responsive so recognising that it varies and it's very dynamic. So that sounds like it's quite hard to measure health literacy. So I wonder if you could just speak about how we could determine somebody's health literacy or the health literacy resources that are available. The newest um, tool that I'm aware of that's been used um, by the National Health Survey is the HLQ. So that's the Health Literacy Questionnaire. And that was designed by Professor Richard Osborne. 
And that importantly acknowledges the individual's um, health literacy, but it also pulls in that distributive health literacy and also that need for their health services um, or organisations or community groups to be responsive to that individual. This is sort of um, comes to sort of some of the research and the, the work that I'm interested in at the moment. And so I think the, um, the tools that measure children's health literacy um, that we have, have really just been taken from an adult context. Um, and when you think about it, children have a really different circumstance um, and a way of thinking or understanding the world and the health, their own health. So um, a year or so ago, I became really interested in seeing if we could develop a measurement tool for children. I thought I'll just race all of my international peers and we'll come up with this wonderful tool for measuring the health literacy of children. But over the last couple of years, I've actually come to realise I don't think we should be so focused on measuring children's health literacy. I think that if we do that, we're, we're missing a, a really important point. And that is that I think we need to be more focused on how we can best develop our children's health literacy. And that's a great point for us to tease our listeners for the next segment. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. My name is Neve Chapman and I'm joined in studio with Dr. Rosie Nash. Stay tuned. For just a second, we'll be talking about Rosie's innovative approach to health literacy with children. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we're talking about health literacy. My name is Neve Chapman, and I'm joined in studio with our expert guest, Dr. Rosie Nash. So, Rosie, in the first segment, you were telling us a lot about what is health literacy and what does that mean as a, a construct and how does it fit within our society? And then you touched upon the fact that children also have some sort of health literacy and that we've typically focused on how we can measure it, but actually you've changed tact and decided to look at how we can develop it more. So is this the birth of health lit for kids? Yeah, I think that that's where, yeah, it came from. And I think there were a lot of different factors that fed into the development of health lit for kids. Um, so so five years ago, um, I realised there was something that needed to be done about the health literacy of our children, our future generation. And um, the reason for that was I'd worked as a pharmacist in cardiac wards in Hobart, Melbourne and London. Um, so I've been a pharmacist for about 18 years and I've also worked in community pharmacies. And over that time I observed that, uh, and I'm not judgmental and it's really important to realise that one of the key principles of health literacy is not being judgmental, but there were many middle-aged men entering the hospitals in which I worked and I saw this um, pattern. So they'd come in for their bypass surgery and then they'd be sent home on a battery of medications. And then as I was giving them their medications on discharge and counselling them on you know, our healthy lifestyle and that sort of thing, um, most of them were, would say to me how determined they were to continue either smoking or continue with the lifestyle that they'd um, had um, before um, surgery and so I thought to myself well that's all very well and good and I can only lead a horse to water I can't make it drink but I thought why aren't we doing more sooner why aren't we doing um, something to prevent that bypass surgery in the first place and so I'm not judgmental of those people and I'm it most likely isn't their fault you know we talked about that in the earlier um, session it, 
might not be their fault that they don't realise that those lifestyle um, choices and are you going to you know cause them to develop a, um, worsening health. So I couldn't help but think, well, couldn't we do something sooner um, and help to prevent um, the use of or uh, or wastage of health resources that we're seeing further on in someone's life? Um, the other thing that fed into Health Lit for Kids becoming a reality, um, and I still pinch myself actually um, to think that an idea could be turned into something um, as big as what Health Lit for Kids has become. But I'm also a mum, and so it, it provided me with an appreciation for how my children learn. And I know all children are very different. Um, certainly my two children are different. Um, but my own t- two children, they're very fortunate. They have two pharmacists at home. And we take for granted the health literacy assets that um, my husband and I possess. And I think we also take for granted that distributive health literacy that I talked about before and what we can offer our children. And then also um, the fact that how well attuned I am and my husband is to navigating that health system that we work within. Um, And the more I learn about health literacy um, and its bi-directional relationship to educational attainment and its ability to um, cut through the social determinants of health that we're all um, born into, I became really passionate about ensuring that all children, not just my children, because they've got two pharmacists at home, um, but all children could have the chance of developing their health literacy assets, those individual health literacy assets. Um, and so I recognise that health literacy requires lifelong learning and that we recognise the importance of developing the asset of health literacy um, as early as possible so that children can make a positive health decisions now and throughout their life course. And that is why, um, why Health Lit for Kids was born. Could you maybe talk about like one of your highlight examples of something that you've delivered with children? Okay, so yeah, the Health Lit for Kids as per the Ophelia guiding principles is multifaceted. So we went out of our way to ensure that the way it was designed for schools and in schools um, had multiple elements. So it focuses at a whole of school level. So we actually action plan and uh, design uh, in workshop with our teachers uh, a whole of school action plan. And then from that, we then encourage the teachers to consider health lit for kids or health literacy in the classroom for a term. They were encouraged not to teach it in isolation, to cross across as many parts of the Australian curriculum as they could. And one of the lovely examples that I always think of is um, one of our schools um, in New Norfolk, so in a, a quite a rural context. And the teacher decided to help Uh, the children so they were doing coding anyway um, coding class uh, and so she asked the children to make these Fitbits and so the children grade three children made these Fitbits but in the development of those Fitbits and cutting across these multiple parts of the Australian curriculum not just the Australian curriculum health and physical education theme area itself um, they managed to cover nine parts of the Australian curriculum in that one task um, because of the way that that teacher designed that lesson plan. So what have been some of the findings of Health Lit for Kids so far? We found very quickly um, that our teachers on the ground here in Tasmania weren't confident to teach health topics. And so that was mirroring what we were also seeing in the international literature. 
And so whilst the Australian Curriculum Health and Physical Education has the theme area and health literacy has been specifically named up in there as a very important thing that we need to be focused on in the classroom or with our children, unfortunately the PE teachers or the health and PE teachers that we have in Tasmania only have time most of the time to move their children. And so then that whole conversation and that whole focus on health is either getting left so it's not being covered at all or the classroom teachers are being required to do it. And so by putting that action plan and having all of those non-judgmental conversations with the teachers in these professional development workshops that we had across the whole year, it really helped the um, teachers to come out of their shell and really tackle health in the classroom in a way that made sense to them and that they felt comfortable with but more importantly in a way that made sense to their children and we've had a statistically significant improvement in the teachers uh, knowledge skills and experience which we measured at the beginning of the process so at the very beginning of workshop one for professional development and then uh, over the whole year we, we continue to stay in touch and provide um, support and at the very end, so at our third workshop, um, at the end of the first year of implementation, our teachers completed that survey again. Um, we saw um, for the 79 teachers that completed that survey um, an improvement which was statistically significant. The other thing that we asked our teachers to do and it was a really useful process actually to think about the health literacy responsiveness of the school, um, we asked the teachers to use an existing tool um, called the Hello Taz tool. Um, that had only been used in community um, organisations previously uh, and so we adapted it for use and we actually had to almost be translators. So we had to uh, turn the language in that tool from health speak into edu speak for the teachers. <laughs> so real time, um, whilst we were completing those tools, we were really helping them to understand um, oh, wow. what the language meant. And those tools were really great because it helped the teachers to think about, oh, so these things are important to health literacy oh, I hadn't thought about how schools could help parents with access and navigation to things they might need in their everyday life to help support them with their health literacy assets. Um, and again, um, whilst it wasn't a statistically significant um, change, we did see a movement demonstrated across all six domains of that um, Hello Taz tool for the schools, our five participating schools' health literacy. I think that, that those findings show that you guys have had such success so early on in this program which is really really exciting but unfortunately we're almost out of time so where do you see this going in the future in terms of health literacy development or health loop for kids so in response to your question I think I'd like to focus more on health literacy in general in community and I've got five steps that I'd like to go through in turn um, to think about how we can do better um, with health literacy into the future Step one then would be that we need to think about health literacy um, and recognise it as a health, education and community issue. Oftentimes I find health lit for kids in particular falls through the cracks. We're not seen as a health issue. We're not seen as an education issue. And then we're also not seen as a community issue. We cut across all three. And so I want to make sure that we are aware that health literacy has to be considered as an issue and something that all three sectors need to take uh, responsibility for. Step two then, uh, and this is related to step one, is that health literacy is a through string. 
uh, needed in our health and in all policy statement. And that was signed by our Premier last year in 2019. And the health in all policy statements are already in place in many states and territories in Australia. Um, it actually came out of South Australia when it was first developed. And the health literacy is then an essential asset for all people to reach their full potential in life. And it's a health in all policy statement that's going to help us bring, bring that or activate that in community. Step three is that we must raise awareness locally, nationally and internationally about the importance of health literacy. And in particular, I think we really need to think about how it can cut through inequity. Um, we need everyone, we need absolutely everyone to understand what the social determinants of health are and that health literacy has been recognised by my international peers as a social determinant of health in its own right. And so makes health literacy um, something that really should be on everyone's agenda and it should be in all of our policies. Step four is that we need to ensure that each state and territory in Australia has a health literacy action plan and that we embed it in everything that we do. Tasmania is the first state in Australia to have a health literacy action plan so we're doing well, um, we're ahead of the curve in that, in that regard. And my final point, which I think is really important and it's very close to my heart, um, as you've already probably gathered from the way I've spoken about this issue, and that is that step five, we need to ensure all children are given the opportunity to develop the asset of health literacy from primary school so that they can um, have the best chance of developing positive attitudes for their life. I think those are excellent action points that people can take away. And I love that they're specific and measurable and that they're focused on policy and on the individual level. I think the funding bodies and our industry partners um, should actually be making it a key requirement that all grants or interventions that, um, that we write from here on in should have not only a clear translation to practice merit, but also clear consideration for how that research upholds these principles of health literacy. So is that grant supporting that individual with their health literacy assets? Is that grant um, and the research that's uh, surrounding it thinking about those three elements of health literacy being the individual, the distributive health literacy and that health literacy responsiveness of the organisation? Um, and I think it's vital that we do this so that we don't accidentally cause or create further inequities in our community. I think that's a really, really important point. And I like that all of your steps were measurable, but then also there's a really clear cut call to action for the research community as well, including the funding bodies, because I think we're seeing with things like the Medical Research Future Fund, we're seeing that consumer driven research has a pedestal now that is really important and I'm glad to see it. But we need to be putting the people who will use our research at the heart of how we design it and bring it forward. So that's a really important point. Thank you, Rosie. Thank you so much for listening to That's What I Call Science. We love bringing you science-related content and hope you enjoyed the show. My name is Neve Chapman and I've been joined by an expert guest, Dr. Rosie Nash. It's been a pleasure to interview you today. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. I've had a great time too. <laughs> awesome. I'd like to give a big shout out to the people behind the scenes that help support the show, which is Meredith Castles in production and Olivia Holloway in media. Head to Edge Radio for more information. Mm -hmm.